was a summer morning. The year was 1555. 9am, first thing in the morning, two men were led to their execution at Smithfield in London. I've been there, I've seen where it is. It's a big meat market, but it used to be a place of execution. These two men were condemned to die, to be burned at the stake as heretics. One was a young man, aged 19, called John Leith. The other was about 45 years old. His name was John Bradford. I've seen a picture of this event, a contemporary picture. The two men are standing there, surrounded by a big pile of firewood. And there are men gathered around them, piling on the firewood to make the fire for the burning. There was also a huge crowd of onlookers come to see the spectacle of these men being executed. How are these two men to face this most cruel death? Were they shaking with fear? Were they pleading for their lives? Bear in mind, these men had been brought before the courts for no other crime except they were Protestant evangelical Christians preaching the word of God preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They refused to believe in the the heretical doctrines of the Catholic Church. They were threatened, they were abused, but they would not turn from the truth of the gospel. So here they stood, two men tied up, surrounded by soldiers, ready to die. John Bradford, the older man, cried out, this was his prayer before he died. O England, England, repent of thy sins. Beware of idolatry, he said. Beware of false antichrists. Take heed that they do not deceive you. And then he turned to to John Leaf, the younger man beside him, and he comforted the younger man. He said, "Be be of good comfort, brother. Cheer up, brother. Because tonight we will have a happy supper with the Lord. Then he embraced the wood of his execution. And he repeated the Saviour's words. Narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life. And there are few that find it. And then the commentator John Fox who wrote about these men. He said, like two lambs, they both ended their mortal lives. Having no fear at all. They burned, their bodies burned, and they passed, their souls passed into the presence of God. There were many martyrs like this in this country, and I'm sure in other lands as well. What would cause a man of 19, what what are young men of 19 doing these days? What would cause a young man like that to stand with an older man and willingly give their lives for the sake of the gospel? to spend themselves proclaiming the gospel in all the the streets and the towns and crying out to people to believe in the Lord Jesus. And then when arrested and accused to say, no, we will not turn from this because this is what we believe to be true and we will not be turned. What gave them the boldness to stand there while the flames were, were creeping up around them and the smoke was going everywhere? What gave them the boldness to stand there and not to plead for their lives, but to, to happily anticipate a joyous supper with the Lord that night? 
I think these two men understood and lived out the reality of these words that we read today. Matthew chapter 10. We are looking today at verse 26. Jesus says, Do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. And then the next verse as well. First of all, I want to look at the imagery that Jesus uses in this passage. What does Jesus mean when he says, What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. As I understand, there was a common practice amongst rabbis of the day. When rabbis were teaching students, they would whisper words into their ears and the students would stand up and they would repeat these words in a loud voice. And it's very likely that Jesus had this in mind when he spoke these words. That's what he's envisaging here. And then what about this thing about shouting from the roofs, proclaiming from the rooftops? Well, of course, this is a, a common practice in the Middle East, isn't it? Where even today, um, the Muslim prayer cry rings out in many cities and towns. My brother has moved to Abu Dhabi in the, in the United Arab Emirates, and every morning there is this cry ringing out in the streets, a public proclamation, come to prayer. Even in, you know, I'm sure some of you, you um, American guys have seen this, even in these kind of old Hollywood films about movies about... Um, Mary England, King Arthur, there's always a kind of herald who goes up on the roof of the castle and proclaims some kind of message from the king. And this is the idea that Jesus has here. Very common practice. People would go up on the roof if they had something important to say and they would proclaim it for everyone to hear. And this idea has entered our language as well, hasn't it? Even today, when you get engaged to someone, what do you do? You proclaim it from the rooftops doesn't actually mean you're up on the roof with a ladder, clambering about, shouting at people. It's a metaphor, isn't it? But it means that we, we want everyone to know. We want the whole world to know. We don't care who knows. The more people that hear it, the better. And this is the idea that Jesus has. It's the opposite of keeping something a secret. Proclaiming it, broadcasting it. That's, this is the imagery that Jesus uses in this passage. I'm sure when his hearers heard that, they understood what he meant. They nodded. I've seen that happening in the synagogue. I've seen that in my local town. There was a guy on the roof proclaiming something. I understand what this means. But what does Jesus mean by these verses? I had to really pray about this and really investigate and think about this. What does Jesus mean when he talks about things being disclosed and things being proclaimed? Things that were hidden, which are are now proclaimed for all the world to hear. Well, I think it means three different things. One, it means the gospel is proclaimed boldly. Two, it means the gospel is proclaimed explicitly. And three, the gospel is explained openly. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. First of all, the gospel is to be proclaimed openly. Boldly, sorry. Chris was talking about boldness in families in witnessing to people. Jesus knows that his disciples are a rather cowardly bunch of men, just like you and me, rather fearful. And he's talked about persecution they can expect. And of course, that's likely to frighten them and to daunt them, isn't it? 
the natural tendency for someone who's threatened with persecution is to be cautious to the point of not actually preaching the gospel at all. What does Jesus advise them to do? He urges them not to be afraid, but to proclaim this gospel boldly and clearly. I get the impression that when Jesus is talking to his disciples here, he's not just talking about their immediate mission, the 12 disciples in Galilee and the surrounding areas. He's looking forward to a time when the apostles would go out, full of the Holy Spirit and the power of God to proclaim the gospel across the Roman Empire, across the known world. During the time of Jesus, his mission was confined to a local area. During the time of Jesus, his mission was rather low-key. How many times did Jesus tell people not to tell others who he was? When he sent his disciples out, he sent them out door-to-door, from place to place, quietly speaking to people, offering the message of peace. And if people refused, they were to go on their way to another place. There wasn't this kind of big, major proclamation in public with the disciples. And when we look at the disciples of Jesus during his lifetime, they were a rather confused bunch, weren't they? To put it mildly. They really found it difficult to grasp things, to understand the teaching of Jesus. And he taught them step by step. And he walked with them and he, he discipled them. And they grew in their knowledge. But even when he went to the cross, they were still confused. And they all ran away and betrayed him and left him. But look at the book of Acts. Look at the contrast when you see the disciples then. How different they were. As I said, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They boldly, publicly proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opposition was fierce. The risks were great. We read today about the Roman Empire. It wasn't an easy place to be a Christian, but these men and women in some cases stood up and said, I am a Christian and this is the gospel and I will not be moved by any threats at all and I will not be silenced. I will preach and preach and preach until you burn me or kill me, but I will will not stop talking about what I've seen and heard. In the book of Acts, we see men who would not cower behind closed doors and hide the message and keep it to themselves, the fear of people. They stood as witnesses in front of the greatest men of the land, the elite, the rulers, the authorities, the priests, Romans, kings. They stood there and they proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen and him coming again to judge. Let me give you just a couple of examples from the book of Acts. I want to show you this boldness that the disciples had, which Jesus talks about in this passage. In Acts 4.29, we read about the apostles who'd been arrested and, and harassed for preaching the gospel. You might have thought, well, perhaps they'll just go away and cower and hide and tone things down a bit. What do we read in Acts chapter 4? Christians got together and they prayed. Acts 4.29, this is the prayer, part of the prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. It says in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. What a difference from the men we see 
in the Gospels, transformed, preaching, praying for boldness, and then proclaiming that word with boldness. Another example, I could give you numerous examples. Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are in jail. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. That's probably where you get the name of your church from, new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. So these guys were arrested. They were put in jail. And if you, if you managed to escape from jail, what would you do? You'd, you'd go and do a runner. You'd hide away somewhere in the desert, in the mountains. Go on the run. But the angel tells them, go back to the temple and proclaim the word of God boldly, openly. Proclaim it. Broadcast it. And that's exactly what they did. Acts 5.27, what happened? The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other, uh, other apostles apologized profusely. Oh, we won't do it again. I'm very sorry. They didn't do that, did they? What did they do? Peter replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. So you've got this man, Peter, who was part of that original twelve, who goes in in spite of powerful rulers and their, their threats. He stands before him and he proclaims Christ boldly. This is what Jesus has in mind, I believe, when he talks about, you know, proclaim it from the rooftops. Proclaim it with boldness and courage and conviction to all who will listen. What could we learn from this? Well, I don't think in our culture we have to stand and shout at people. There's a place for proclamation on the streets, and I've done it myself, to a, a mixed audience, to a mixed reaction. But we don't have to stand on a roof or sit on a roof and shout at people, that can be counterproductive. You look like some kind of crazy idiot. But we are to preach the gospel, and we are to preach it with boldness and conviction, and not to shrink back and say, oh, perhaps we might get into trouble for saying that, or people might not like that. Well, they might not like it, but this is the gospel. And we are called, just as they were, to proclaim it boldly and openly with conviction. And we have to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves and wise. And I spoke about that two weeks ago. But we do have to proclaim the gospel. We can't get away from it. And that involves speaking. And that involves being bold and standing up to be counted. And say, this is what I am. I'm a Christian. And this is the message that you need to hear. We do that with winsomeness, with gentleness, with respect, with wisdom. But we do do it. We should do it. The first thing that Jesus says, the the gospel will will be proclaimed boldly. The second point I want to make is that Jesus envisages the gospel being preached in its entirety, in its fullness. Jesus is looking forward, looking to a time when the gospel will be preached in a way which, which is more explicit and more complete. Let me explain what I mean. When Jesus preached the gospel, when he preached to the people of his time, When he sent the apostles out to preach, Jesus spoke to the crowd in shadows 
and parables, didn't he? Mark 4, verse 34, it says this. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So what we see is we see a difference between how Jesus related to his disciples and how he related to the crowds. He spoke to the crowd in parables. He spoke to them in pictures. He spoke to them in shadows. He he spoke to them in a kind of rather cryptic way. He taught them a lot of truth, but that that, that was the method our Lord employed using these kind of stories and pictures. And yet it says, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. I mean, that doesn't mean they understood everything. They were still very slow to understand, but he explained to them in a different way. We know this, don't we? Because Jesus never, never seems to have explained his parables to the crowd to listen to them. But we know on at least two occasions, Jesus, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. He opened up the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds and the wheat, the tares, we call it. He interpreted those parables. But he didn't do that to the crowd, only to the disciples. Matthew 13, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Dear friends, marvelously, through the Gospels, we, we, have a, a kind of, we have an opportunity to get into that inner circle of Jesus and hear the interpretations and hear that teaching which the, the wider crowds did not hear at the time, but the disciples did. But I believe there was a hidden nature to Jesus' ministry in a sense that he did not tell people everything. He did not explain everything. And the disciples didn't say everything either. Jesus made many striking claims about himself. Jesus said many outrageous things about himself, things which would be outrageous if they were not true. And yet there was always a kind of hidden quality about Jesus. A lot of his teaching was implicit rather than explicit. Jesus didn't often stand up and say, look at me, I am the saviour, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins, you need to believe in me. All those things are there contained in his teaching, but it's it's implicit rather than explicit. There were times when he spoke openly, about himself, but often it was in a kind of veiled nature, partial. And the disciples, we, what was their message when they went out? Jesus said, preach, the kingdom of God is near. We're not told what else they had to say. It was a quite simple message, the kingdom of God is near. However, after Pentecost, after the resurrection, we see a difference, don't we? We see the apostles standing up and preaching the whole gospel, the full gospel with, with great insight and understanding all the pieces of the puzzle fell into place after Pentecost it wasn't that confusion they understood they stood up there and they proclaimed Jesus they proclaimed salvation in his name and you see after the resurrection after Pentecost the, the message of the disciples was beautifully clear and the whole package of the gospel was proclaimed in a way that wasn't done before when Jesus walked the earth That's why we get books like Romans and Ephesians, these great doctrinal books. Jesus never taught like that. Jesus didn't teach the book of Ephesians because the disciples were not ready to receive it. But after Pentecost, all this is proclaimed and taught openly. And that's what Jesus means here. There's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. One day, all these things that he's taught in private will be proclaimed to everyone and people will understand the big picture of how this all fits together. 
fully, explicitly proclaimed. What do we learn from this? Well, we have the complete picture, don't we? We have the word of God, we have the gospel, and we can preach Jesus. We can preach everything from creation right through to revelation, the return of our Lord Jesus. We know the big picture. We, we placard the glory of our Lord Jesus before the world to anyone who will listen, the whole gospel in all its entirety, in all its completeness. I hope that makes sense. The third thing Jesus could mean here is that the gospel is proclaimed transparently, openly. Some religions and secret societies, and I'm sure nobody here is a member of any of those, some religions and secret societies have a kind of system where there's a kind of elite group at the centre, and if you work your way up in the organisation, you get given more secrets and more information until you reach the inner circle where you understand everything. Ordinary members of these cults and, and organizations don't get to hear all the kind of the, the deep secrets of these things. Is the Christian faith like that? Good, I'm glad you said that. Do the elders meet behind closed doors talking about deep secrets that only yeah, we do, but... Yeah. <laughs> oh, you didn't let me finish the sentence. Do we meet behind closed doors talking about deep secrets none of you can hear because you're just the, the ordinary people of the church? No, I hope you don't think that. Do we have a stash of secret doctrines and secret books hidden away, like the Vatican kind of somewhere, that only the elite know about? And if you rise up the ladder, you might one day get to know some of these secrets. No. That's the answer, no. In this passage, Jesus makes it clear, doesn't he, that his followers, Christians, are not to be like that. There's a wonderful openness and transparency about Christians. There should be. We're not to be selective in the bits we reveal to the world and the bits we hide from the world, are we? There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. We're not the guardians of this kind of arcane, secretive system. We're here to proclaim Christ in all his fullness and all his glory, openly, transparently. We don't just teach the positive bits of the gospel, the bits that people like to hear, that their itching ears want to hear. We preach everything in the word of God, and we should do. There are no hidden places in the church of Jesus Christ, no dark corners. There is no kind of Gnostic higher knowledge. There's no inner circle. We are open about what we believe. Anybody can walk through that door and hear everything we believe. There's no secrets. Yes, of course, some people may not be ready to receive deeper teaching if they're a young Christian. I'm not going to launch into some very kind of deep doctrine, you know, about God's sovereignty and, and all this kind of stuff. But they might not be ready to receive that. Even Jesus knew that. He didn't teach his disciples everything. But we have no secrets. We should be like the Apostle Paul, who could honestly say, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. He says in Acts 20, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. What a wonderful thing to be able to say when you come to the end of your ministry. I have not hesitated to preach anything to you which could be helpful for you. I wrote this. I'll just read what I wrote. Not all of us are called to be evangelists or missionaries. 
Well, we are all called to be witnesses. Jesus would have us, I believe, proclaim the gospel boldly and confidently. We are not to let fear of opposition or persecution silence us like a tortoise retreating into its shell at the first sign of danger. We are to preach the gospel fully, laying open the mysteries of the gospel, things that were hidden which are now being revealed. We proclaim it to all who will listen. We do not withhold anything which would be helpful. You know, guys, I love this, this speech of Jesus, this commissioning speech. It's so relevant to us, so helpful, so balanced, so packed full of wisdom. It shows us the perfect combination of qualities we need to, to proclaim the Lord Jesus in a hostile world. And as I said two weeks ago, these, these qualities that Jesus envisages hold each other in tension. So if you possess these things, they, they prevent you from going to extremes one way or the other. Christians are to be bold, but not belligerent, not annoying, not hostile. We're to be transparent and open, but not naive. We're to be cautious, but not fearful. We're to be persistent, but not annoying. When the doors close, we go somewhere else. We are reluctant to provoke unnecessary persecution, but we're not afraid to face it when it does come, if it does come. And you see here these qualities balancing each other out in perfect harmony. If we had these things, we, we can operate in this society we live in. And not just operate and survive, but actually preach the gospel. Verse 28, Jesus talks about fear of men. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus knows that his disciples are fearful. You and I would be fearful as well. What reason do we have to take his word seriously when he says, don't be afraid? Is it just a glib, don't be afraid, it'll be okay? No, because the very worst that people can do to us is take our, take our bodies, take our lives. That's all they can do. That might seem like a terrible thing. That might seem like a great tragedy. To lose your life. But if you know that your soul, the part of you that will live on forever, is safe with God, then it's not the ultimate tragedy. For the unbeliever, the person that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus, there's, there's a double tragedy. There's the, what the Bible calls the second death in Revelation. Not only will you, you die, your body will die in this life, but then you'll be raised on the judgment day, and then you'll, you'll be cast into hell and suffer the second death. Lostness for all eternity. That's the ultimate tragedy. It's far better, and I, I don't say this glibly or easily, this is, this is a difficult thing to grasp. It's far better, according to Jesus, to lose your life for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, because you fear God than to compromise and shrink back from preaching the word and serving the Lord because you fear people and end up losing your soul on the judgment day. This is countercultural because everything in our society, in human societies, tells us, preserve your life at all costs. Don't give up your life. Prolong it as long as possible. Be as safe and as happy as you possibly can be. 
The Christian says, or should say, my life is not my own. It doesn't belong to me. I was bought at a price. If God sees fit to take my life for the glory of his son and the extension of his kingdom, then I gladly and willingly will give it up. And I believe that's what those two men at the beginning of this sermon understood. Take my life. I'm going to be with the Lord tonight, this very day. So they could face that awful, awful death knowing that it was just the body dying but the soul going straight into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Those men had their reward, didn't they? What would have happened if they if they'd shrunken back and just compromised and given in? What would have happened? Isn't it a blessed thing to know where you're going? To know that your soul is safe in the hands of Jesus. The very worst that people can do to you, the very worst is to take your life. Isn't it wonderful to be able to say with the psalmist, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Someone might hear this and say, oh, what are you talking about? They can do, do an awful lot to you. They can kill you. They can suffer, make you suffer. They can torture you. They can persecute you. The Christian might reply, I know that's true, but that's all they can do. There's a limit to their powers. Many of us in this room may never, ever have to give up, give up our lives physically for the sake of Christ, for the gospel. But it's very comforting, isn't it, to know that even if he does call us to that one day, even if he does call us to that, that's not the worst, is it? The world can throw its worst at us. It can throw everything it has at us, but it cannot take away the most precious thing that we have, which is our souls, safe in the arms of the Lord, entrusted to Christ. And let me say this. It could be that there could be someone in here today who is actually scared, more fearful of men and man's opinions than they are of God. There are many people that would, would never think about becoming Christians because they're scared of what people might think. Even though their, their lives are not in danger physically. Let me say this, if that's you today, what a foolish, what a sad thing it would be for you to lose your life. Because you're going to die anyway one day, you're, all of us are going to die. And then stand before God as your judge. Because you were afraid of men's opinions. Pray that God does such a mighty work in your heart that you say, whatever it costs, whatever it costs, I fear the Lord more. I know this is a difficult thing. We need to pray about this, don't we? Many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience this as a daily reality. Don't let fear of, fear of men put you off coming to Christ, please. And then just finally, verse 29. Reassurance from Jesus. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. Isn't it a very Jesus-like thing to do? To one minute talk about the judge destroying body and soul in hell, and the next minute talking about his gentle care for his creation. What a contrast. But those two things are true about God. You can't pigeonhole God. He's not one or the other. He's, the, he's a, a fearsome judge, but he's also a loving, benevolent creator. At the time of Jesus, sparrows were everywhere. 
They were roasted by the street as a kind of street food, a kind of snack. If you wanted something, you didn't get a kebab. You went and had a roasted sparrow on a stick. Anybody getting hungry thinking about that? Probably not. But they were the epitome of a, 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 a worthless bird, a worthless creature. They were so common. They were literally to a penny. They were everywhere. Does the God who knows about the stars and planets, who governs the stars and planets and governs the universe, does he care about such insignificant creatures? According to Jesus in this passage, not one of these tiny birds falls to the ground except for the will of God. God's God's knowledge of this and his permission of this means that these creatures fall down and God sees them when they die. I pondered this. In some remote forest in Estonia tonight, a sparrow could fall to the ground. It could die after however long sparrows live. And God knows about it. And it, it, this, this event has happened because God has allowed this to happen. God knows about the spider under the floorboards here, or the many spiders. God knows about the ants that get inside my kitchen. I can't eradicate them. They keep coming back again and again. It's like a biblical plague. <laughs> every single ant. And God knows about every single hair on our heads. And some, some of us, of course, have got more hair than others. And God knows about every particle and atom of this universe. Every minute detail. He's fully in control of all of it. Governing it. Upholding it. What an amazing statement about the the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the all-knowingness of God, the almightiness of God, the unbelievable degree of control he has over his creation. All we can say, all I can say is this, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I think it's enormously comforting for us, isn't it? If this is true, and of course it is true, then Jesus' disciples and all Christians should not allow themselves to think that any persecution they might encounter means that God has either abandoned them or somehow lost control of the situation. Any persecution, any trouble you face does not mean that God has lost control of the situation or that God has abandoned you. And I, I do think this as well. Let me say, Jesus is talking about persecution, but I believe this can, can be extended to any kind of suffering that you might encounter in your life, any kind of hardship you might be going through. Illness, family problems, relationship problems, work problems, problems with your children, whatever it might be, nothing happens to the Christian outside of the will of God. The sovereign will of God, the all-powerful, governing will of God there's nothing his people go through that he doesn't know about or care about there's no situation in which he cannot help which he cannot give us support and strength in and then Jesus gives that punchline the understatement of, of, of the millennia you know you are worth more than many sparrows so don't be afraid if God knows and cares about these insignificant worthless creatures How much more does he care about those that he's called and written in his book 
from all eternity before the world began. How much more does he care about those that his son shed his precious blood for? How much more does he care about those who serve him and represent him and preach his message and go about his business? How much more does he care about those whose destiny is in heaven to share the glory of the Lord Jesus? My conclusion, dear Christian brother or sister, this is a promise for you, for me, for all of us to remember the benevolent care of our God, the all-powerful sovereign care of our God. If you face opposition because of your obedience to the gospel, to the Lord Jesus, remember, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Take those words of Jesus into this week. Don't be afraid.